In the first three sermons, we looked at what God's Word is and whether we are right to believe it, whether it's accurate, whether it's true. Can we trust it? This morning, I'm going to make an assumption that we agree with that, that it is inerrant. It is true. It is trustworthy. Because that leaves us with one or two more questions we need to ask. Questions such as, why and for what is the Bible necessary? Can people know anything about God apart from the Bible? Is the Bible enough for us? Is it all we need? Does it teach us all we need to know about God and about his plans for us? Or do we need to go somewhere else? So today we're going to look at two other aspects, if you like, of the Bible. The theologians would call them the necessity of the Scriptures and the sufficiency of the Scriptures. And I can't emphasize enough how important these things are. I believe strongly in my heart that the strength and the depth of our belief in the Scriptures and our appreciation of the Scriptures as God's inerrant and authoritative word, that is what determines the depth and the strength of our spiritual experience. Those who have what I call a high view of the Scriptures experience God's will for them in an enriching and an exciting way. For those who have a very low view of the Scriptures, their spiritual experience will always miss out on some of those things that God wants for us. So the first question then is, is the Scripture necessary for us? Is it really necessary? And how dependent are we on it for our knowledge of God and His will for us? So firstly, we ask the question is, is the Bible absolutely necessary if we are to know God's will, and I believe it is, and we're going to argue for that very briefly. But we're also going to suggest that the Bible is not necessary for a basic knowledge of who God is, a basic knowledge of his character, and a little bit about his, his moral laws for the universe. But the Bible is absolutely necessary if we are to know and to understand the gospel. And we need to begin in Paul's magnum opus, that great book of Romans, which I always think if you're going to read any book twice or three times a year, make it the book of Romans, because it's where Paul lays out for us in a most wonderful sense the whole point of why God came to earth in Christ. And in Romans chapter 10 and verse 13, we read this. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. But how are people to call upon him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe on him, of him whom, of whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without a preacher? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the preaching of Christ. Do you hear the argument? Paul, first of all, says, if you're going to call upon the name of the Lord, that's the starting point. One must call upon the name of the Lord if you're to be saved at all. And people then, he says, in the second part of his argument, people can and will only call upon the name of the Lord if they believe in him. And people cannot believe in him unless they have heard of him. 
See Paul's logic, this wonderful legal logic that he throws out. And you cannot hear about him unless somebody preaches to you. They need a preacher. They need to hear the word of God. So he concludes then, saving faith comes by hearing the gospel message, and this hearing comes through preaching. And so there's no other way that you're able to to hear the gospel unless it be preached. There's no other way. And today, more than ever, this should spur us on, I believe, to to make sure the precious word of God gets into the ears and the hands of everybody we know. Because there are so many other scriptures which say this again and again. He who believes in him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's only one way. Jesus said it himself, I am that way. I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. There is salvation in no one else, no other name, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. It's one way, and that way is the gospel, and the gospel is encased in this book It's absolutely necessary. Our understanding of Scripture is absolutely necessary for us to understand the gospel. There's no other way. And this really makes it so important for you and I as his children to make sure people don't just know we go to church. Don't just know that we call ourselves Christian. Don't just know that we're good folk. But they know the gospel. Knowing that we go to church isn't going to change their lives when they know the gospel. And secondly, the Bible is absolutely necessary if we are to know and to understand with any certainty God's will for the world and especially for our own lives. We will argue in just a moment that the the Bible is not necessary for people in the whole world to know a little bit about God. He has revealed himself to everybody. We know that. But without the written word of God... Without our access to this written word from God, we can never gain any certainty at all about God's will for us and no certainty about his will for the world. You see, in the scriptures, we, we have a very clear and definite, definite statement of what God wants for us. We know that he has created. We know that he has given us the information we need. And we'll argue in a moment that we have all we need. We don't need any more. We have what we need for guidance. The scriptures say it this way in Deuteronomy. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things that are revealed belong to us. So the whole idea of God has a whole lot of stuff. And at this point in time, he has revealed some of it to us. And that's revelation. It's come to us. We've got it no other way. That we may do all the words of his law. To be blameless in God's sight is to walk in the law of the Lord. He has given us his law so we can walk the way he wants us to walk. And Psalm 19, that, uh, Psalm 1, Psalm and verses 1 and 2 talk about the people who delight in the law of the Lord. And they meditate on that law day and night. So we do have... This, is, this to me is so exciting. I get really excited about this. Forgive me if I get a bit overexcited. It's all here, guys. It's all here. It's the only place it is. 
I'll let you into a secret if you haven't heard it already. Our pastor is going to be preaching on Joshua. How about that? From September on. September onwards, Nick. And I love the book of Joshua, particularly when he's standing in front of the people. And in Joshua 1.8, the instruction comes, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you'll meditate therein day and night that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. It's in the law, it's in there, it's in his word. And this is really, really important. But the Bible is not necessary in order for someone to know that God exists. And it's important we know that. We have to ask at this stage, well, what about all those people who never darken the doors of a church? What about all those people who never read the Bible for whatever reason? Can they know anything about God? The answer is yes, they can. How do we know this? Quite simply, I believe, because the Bible teaches us that people can obtain, can obtain a knowledge that God exists. More than that, they can obtain knowledge about a little bit about his character. And certainly they can know a little bit about what his expectations are in terms of laws and the way the world operates. Let's have a look at some of the scriptures. One of the scriptures that we have is the heavens, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament it's really another word, if you like, for the heavens. Declare his handiwork. He has revealed himself to everybody in his creation. Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 4, in verse 16 and 17, are talking to the, uh, to the Greek inhabitants of the city of Lystra. And they say, In past generations God allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good and he gave you from heavens rains and fruitful seasons. And once again, if we go to the book of Romans, we see in chapter, chapter 1, verses 19 to 20, 21, Paul says this, and this is so important, for what can be known about God is plain to them. He's speaking about men and women in general. It is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his invisible nature, there's something about God, his invisible nature. Namely, his eternal power, there's a little bit more. And his deity, there's a little bit more. Has been clearly perceived in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their senseless minds were darkened. The Bible leaves us in no, no doubt whatsoever that men and women in general, no matter where they are, no matter who they are, have a knowledge of God. In creation, we know something of him and of his character. He's saying that all people, even the most evil world figures and even the most adamant of atheists, do have some internal knowledge of God from their earliest years of, of recognition and independent thought. Those who say there is no God are not making a statement of observed and researched fact, but of deliberate rebellion and chosen ignorance. They know, they know, God says so. 
And furthermore, the Bible is not necessary for knowing at least something about God's character and his moral laws. Paul says in in Romans 1, he says that all people, even those who have no written record of of God's word, like the Bible, still have in their consciences some understanding of God's moral standards. In Romans chapter 1 again, verse 32, Paul is, is talking about some of the awful sins that he sees around him in the world. And he says, though they know God's decree that those, that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they approve those who practice them. And in the next chapter, we see Paul talking to the, the, uh, the Gentile uh, men and women in, in Rome who have no knowledge of God's word. They haven't heard it yet. And he says this, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, they haven't got the Bible, they haven't got the Jewish scriptures, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. This is important. They show that what the law requires is written on their hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or perhaps excuse them. Men and women who have never seen the scriptures, they may have a Bible sitting on a shelf somewhere, they may have been to church once in a while, but they know nothing really about God. The Bible says they do know God exists, and they do know something about him. How do they know that? Because of what God has put in front of them as a creation, and what he has put inside them in terms of a conscience. They know. They know. The knowledge of God's existence, his character, his moral standards, is known as something that we call general revelation. It's called general revelation because God has revealed himself in this way generally to all people. And it comes when folks observe the beauty and the wonder and the design in nature, when they see God's influence in history, and when they come through an inner sense of his existence in their consciences. There are no such things as a born atheist. Atheism is a choice. It's a rebellious choice. But this general revelation is not enough to get you saved. It's not enough. To be saved, one needs what we call special revelation. And that special revelation is the revelation of God in the person of Jesus Christ and his revelation to us in this wonderful book that we have. That special revelation, which includes all of the words of Scripture and a lot, lot more we're still to learn. Can you imagine? Can you imagine this? When Jesus was with his disciples, he was with them for over a thousand days. A thousand days. Three, three and a half years. We're not quite sure exactly how long. But in the Scriptures, we only have record of 34 or 35 days that he spent with them. That's all we know of. That's all. What do you think the Lord was telling them on the other thousand odd days? There's so much, so much. I tell you, you and I are going to get to that, that, that glory one day and we're going to learn so much. You think you're learning now? Wait till you get there. There's going to be so much. But special revelation says we've got from God right now everything we need to know. And it's special revelation, special, special revelation by which we are saved. General revelation, where God has revealed himself in in the human conscience, is a special blessing to our world. Without it, 
without the social restraints that it brings, this world would be a far worse place than it is. I thank God for general revelation, that he has put into the hearts of men and women a consciousness of understanding how we ought to live. We thank God every day for people who live and urge others to live according to laws of tolerance and respect and integrity for life and sanctity for life. We applaud people who espouse honesty and kindness and compassion and service to others. Thank God for that. But it must be emphasized that this general revelation cannot and does not lead to a knowledge of the Savior. People have always known that God exists, that he is their creator, and that they owe him obedience, but they've chosen to reject that. And despite many reminders that God gives people in providing rains and providing what they need so often, Paul says in Acts 14, yet men and women and young people reject and turn their backs on him. How people one day come to a true knowledge of God's holiness and judgment and his willingness to forgive cannot be through general revelation. And this is a mystery to every other religion, you know. It's only in the Bible through God's special revelation and through Jesus Christ that we can find out all we need to know. The Bible gives us no hope that anyone can ever come to this special knowledge and the way of salvation apart from the Bible. And that's why we preach it and teach it at every opportunity. I encourage you, take this book with you wherever you go. Read it. Show people. I had this book with me up in Manchester last week. And I had it on my little desk and I work in a pod up there when I'm up there and there are people all around me. And th- on three occasions, because I always have it open as well, because sometimes a Bible looks like any other book when it's closed. But when it's open, you can't, you can't, you can't, it's a Bible, right? You, you, you can't miss it. And I had it open in front of me. I just left it there. Three people came to me and said, Rob, what's that? Three people. We hide it away. We hide it away. And it's the reason why Gideon's blessed them are trying to get, still trying to get Bibles into every hotel room in the world. They're having a hard time right here in the UK because many hotels won't take them anymore. And it's why organizations like the Bible Society are trying to reach that goal of the Bible translated into every single known language within the next couple of years. That's why. There's no other reason. So let's move on. Is the Bible alone, then? Is it sufficient for us to know? Do we need anything besides the Bible? We're now moving on very quickly to the sufficiency of the Scriptures. If you want a theological definition of the sufficiency of the Scriptures, it would sound something like this. It means that the Bible contains everything that God intended his people in every age to know in order to trust him completely, in order to obey him perfectly, and in order to be saved from his judgment. It is in the Bible alone that we are to search for God's words for us. It also means that God considers what he has told us in the Bible to be enough for us. We don't need more. He has given enough. Let's look at one or two verses of Scripture once again. 
The first, first few verses will be familiar to you. Those of you who have been doing your memorization, uh, you'll remember this. Paul speaking to Timothy. And he says, And how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through Christ. The Holy Scriptures make us wise for salvation. And then all Scripture, including the New Testament, is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the last little bit, which we didn't have to memorize, so I forgive you, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Thank, thank the Lord for the Bible. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all that he created. One of the great cries of the, the Reformation, I'm busy reading a, a wonderful uh, documentation of the, of the Reformation uh, at the moment, and reading about those courageous men like Luther and Zwingli and Melanchthon and Calvin and others, and John Knox in Scotland and others. And the cry of the, of, of the Reformation was, solar fides, faith alone. We don't need to have all this other stuff. It's faith. The, the justified are justified by faith. And sola gratia, it's by grace alone. We don't need all this other stuff. It's sola Christo, by Christ alone. And the fourth one was sola scriptura, the Bible alone. What a day that must have been to live in. This is the 500th year after, the after that uh, Reformation. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. What then can we do over and above what God commands us in Scripture? Is there anything we need to be doing over and above? No, not at all. If we simply live close to God's Word and we live in the grace provision that God has given us in His Spirit to work through us, we will be blameless. And we will be doing every good work that God expects of us. Of course, we, we realize that in this life, in this flesh, we, we're going to find it very, very difficult indeed to obey every single word of Scripture. And that's why our pastor took us recently through the book of Galatians. Because that book, once again, the Apostle Paul says, we live by the same grace by which we were saved. It's by grace. It's the grace that brought us to life in the first place. It's the grace that sustains us through our living the Christian life. So although we, we can't do it all in our own strength, the wonder of the sufficiency of Scriptures is this. It enables us, day by day, moment by moment, week by week, just to find and to focus on God's Word for us. And we, we're freed from that endless search of going into hundreds and hundreds of other places to find it. The doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture means that we can go directly to our Bibles. And, and with some time and some energy and some focus, we're able to come to a clear conclusion of what God wants from us. We can find God's truth about how to have a happy marriage in the Bible. We can find God's truth about how to rear our children in the Bible. We can find God's truths about how to resist temptation right here in these pages. 
We can find God's will for us in, in changing the, the culture of the places where we work in the Bible. We don't need all the other stuff. Of course it's useful. Of course reading other books and all that kind of stuff can be hugely useful. But it's not essential. And we can all be, in our own way, students of the Scripture. All of us can collect together all of the passages that talk about any important part of Scripture. From the virgin birth to the atonement. From the person of Christ to the work of the Holy Spirit. We can go to our own scriptures, and especially if you've got one that's got a few uh, notes down the side or a few alternative references, and you can build up your own picture of what these great doctrines mean and what they're all about. You don't have to be a Bible scholar to do that. That's the glory of God's Word. Here we differ quite widely, as I've said before, from the Roman Catholic position, which almost, which almost discourages an individual study of Scripture. You can see why. We also differ here from, from other teachers, particularly those of a non-evangelical or liberal persuasion, sadly so prominent in so many of the mainline denominations. When you have a man in the pulpit who does not believe that the Bible is truly God's Word, is not sufficient nor necessary, If that's not true, then they go to other sources, and they'll go to psychology, they'll go to sociology, they may even go to other religions, and from the pulpits they will tell you that the Bible is not enough. We need to be aware of those wolves in sheep's clothing, and we need to pray that God would limit their influence and bring them to a knowledge of himself. So let me close. Some very practical applications of what I've been saying. Firstly, because the Bible is entirely sufficient for us, because the Bible is all we need to know about God and his intentions, we should be encouraged as we search for what God wants us to think and to say and to do in any situation. We should be deeply encouraged that we have everything that God wants to tell us and what he wants us to believe. I can't, I can't tell you enough how important it is to, to have a high view of this book, to have a high view of Scripture, really believing that the answers are here. It is a book full of answers. And as we progress in our, children, in our Christians' lives, and as we spend more and more time in the Bible, we'll find that we begin to understand it better and better, how to apply its teachings to our everyday life. And I thank the Lord today for the Holy Spirit who... Without his help, without his help and without his, his working in our lives in those moments when we open the scriptures, this could be such a very difficult, confusing book to read. But that's the Holy Spirit's job, to make it for us that we can understand it. Secondly, the sufficiency of the scriptures reminds us that we are to add nothing to the Bible. And we are consider no other writings as equal to the Bible. The Catholic Church and every other pseudo-Christian sect violate this principle immediately. From the Jehovah's Witnesses with their so-called New World Translation, which is no translation at all, to the Christian scientists who say you don't look at the Bible unless you read Mary Baker's Eddie's, Eddie's Signs and Health with the Key to the Scriptures. You've got to read that first. And the Mormons who have their own Bible, the Book of Mormon, Catholics with their apocryphal books and their church and papal teachings, 
that carry so-called equal weight with the Bible. And it's even been known, I think, from time to time in mainstream Christian churches for similar errors to be made when people go beyond the teaching of the Scriptures and base their thinking on speculation or what is sometimes called prophetic disclosures or experiences of those who have near-to-death or post-death experiences. It can be very dangerous to build any sense of what God is trying to tell us on those things that are not in the Scriptures. And in the last hundred years or so of church history, there have been a number of movements. Some, has, some have claimed that God has given them some kind of special revelation. Maybe some kind of special revelation about the end time, when it's going to be and how we ought to prepare for it. Some special revelation about some special doctrines that, that are theirs and theirs alone. We need to evaluate such claims very, very carefully. We must be careful never to allow, in theory or practice, the placing of such revelations on an equal standing with the Bible. We must insist that God does not require us to believe anything about himself and his work in the world that isn't contained in the pages of our Bibles. Thirdly, the sufficiency of the Scripture tells us that God does not require us to believe anything about himself or his work of redemption that is not found in the Bible. He's revealed himself to us as completely as he wants to. It doesn't matter if we never read another book, not even another Christian book, as long as we search and we study the Bible for our knowledge of God. Now, of course, the writings of other wonderful Christians can be very useful, and I found them useful, and my wife will tell you she has a horror fit every time an Amazon package arrives at the door because it's another book and we have no more place to put them. And that's the absolute truth. I apologize, my darling. And I have lots and lots of books that are not Bibles. But we must always be careful to do two things with any other book we read. Number one, always give the Bible priority in terms of the time and effort we spend reading. And secondly, weigh everything other Christian writers might say against what we know the Bible to be saying. Almost done. With regard to living the Christian life, this doctrine of the sufficiency of the Scriptures reminds us that nothing is sin that is not forbidden in the Scriptures, either explicitly or by implication. We're not to add anything to the prohibitions of Scripture and call them sin. Now, there are many times, I think, in the life of a believer when we try to make decisions whether something is right for us or wrong for us. Should I partake of a certain kind of drink? Should I attend a certain type of show or watch a certain kind of movie? Should I be reading this type of book or watching this kind of program on television? Unless some specific teaching or general principle in Scripture can be shown to prohibit such activities, for all Christians at all times, we have to insist that these activities are not necessarily in themselves sinful. And they are therefore not situations that God prohibits all his people. We have access to every incident according to the Bible. In every, any of these incidents, whether it's a, a certain movie or a certain TV show or, or whatever it might be, the Bible has many principles that we, we can follow. Principles about love. 
Principles around not offending anybody else. Principles around avoiding unhealthy sexual connotations. Respect for others, non-violence, and so on and so on. And those principles are right and, and need to be clear in our conscience. But I tell you something, and I've read about this recently. I hope it, and I, I pray it never really happens in our church. Huge harm can be done to the church and to the lives of individual people when someone makes a habit of adding to the list of sins that are prohibited in the Bible. I've heard of some believers earnestly beseeching God for victory over sins which are not really sins, because the Bible doesn't call them sins. And no victory comes because it is not the work of the Holy Spirit to give victory over something that is not sinful in the first place. And I believe if we add to the list of sins, add to the list of prohibitions based on our view of what is right and what is wrong, then we create so much false guilt. It often results in increasing intolerance in the church and legalistic insistence on new rules that were never meant to be, and fellowship becomes disturbed. The sufficiency of Scripture also tells us that nothing is required of us by God that is not commanded in the Scriptures, either explicitly or by implication. I'm almost done. The primary focus of in, our, in our search for God's will ought to be the Bible. Before we go seeking guidance from others or even praying for changed circumstances or even altered feelings or even a, a direct voice from the Holy Spirit. It also means this. If anyone claims to have a message from God telling us what we ought to think or do, we need not fear that it is sin to disregard such a claim, unless it can be confirmed by the Scriptures themselves. And I believe this realization can bring tremendous joy and tremendous peace to the lives of so many Christians who spend countless hours seeking God's will outside of the Scriptures and are then usually uncertain as to whether they're founded or not. I've come across Christians who express that they're not at all sure whether they can or ever will find God's will for their lives. They show little confidence in ever being able to do that, and they give up. They give up. The opposite ought to be true. Christians who are convinced of the sufficiency of the Scriptures should begin with eagerness and earnestness to seek and find God's will in the Scriptures. The result is that then they will be eagerly and regularly growing in obedience and holiness and experience that terrific freedom that comes from walking in the center of God's will. And they'll be able to say with the psalmist, I will keep your law continually forever and ever. It's that lovely Psalm 119. And I shall walk at liberty, for I have sought your precepts. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. Finally, the sufficiency, I'm getting around that word eventually, by the end of the sermon I'll have it right, the sufficiency of Scripture reminds us that our doctrinal and our moral teaching, we should emphasize what the Scriptures emphasize and be content with what God has told us in Scripture. What do I mean by this? Let's remember that there are some subjects that God has told us nothing or very little about. Remember what was said in Deuteronomy chapter 29, the secret things belong to God. There's a lot of secrets. 
that we haven't yet heard of. But God has revealed to us in the Bible exactly what he wants us to know for the time being. And it's not for us to wish that God had told us more about anything. It's not our job. Or that he should have given us a heads up on subjects on which the Bible is quiet. There are a number of issues that have unfortunately divided Protestants over the years. And these divisive issues are in almost every occasion issues on which Scripture says very little. Protestant churches have been divided over the years over things like what is the proper government for church? How should a church govern itself? In which the Bible says relatively little. Issues around about the very nature of Christ's presence in the, in the communion, in the Eucharist, of which the Bible says very, very little. Of the correct understanding of issues such as the baptism of the Holy Spirit or the rapture of the church. Issues in which the Bible says very, very little. Now, we don't say these matters are unimportant, nor should we say that the Scripture gives us no solution to any of them. Since all of these subjects, however, receive relatively little emphasis in the Scriptures, it's ironic and terribly tragic that so many spend so much of their time and energy defending vigorously the very doctrines that make their denomination different from the next one, when the Bible says so very little. It seems sometimes to me rather that these debates and these discussions are driven more by human pride and the desire to exercise power and position over others. So the scriptures are necessary and the scriptures are sufficient. Next week we have sports, sports reach Sunday. I'm looking forward to that. During the month of August we'll be looking at some of the Psalms. And when we get back the first Sunday of September, I'll be completing this series, as it were, when we're going to have a message on how do we for ourselves use this book? How can we get the most out of it for ourselves? So finally, you've got your memory verses for week one and, verse, and week two. There was last week's. So I've got one more for you for this week. Here it is, Matthew 4, verse 4. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, Imagine living on bread alone. I can't imagine that. Even I like my occasional salad. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word, every word that comes out of the mouth of God. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your precious word. Oh, Lord, make it precious to our hearts. That we might not boast in how much we know or how much we can memorize or how much we can quote, but we might boast in the work that the Holy Spirit in the person of Jesus is doing in our lives because of the attendance we pay to the Word of God. Lord, take this Word off the pages and implant it in our hearts. This week we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.